The title there you see on the screen, if you're here in person, of this morning's message is the once and future king. Now, those of you who are literary bent, uh, you know perhaps that this is some of the Arthurian legend material. This book by that same title, my title today is shamelessly stolen from this book, uh, and which is entitled The Once and Future King, written by the Arthurian fantasy novelist T.H. White. Now, White translated the Latin phrase rex quandum, rex que futurus, which is simply the once and future king. Now, there's an also another player that some of you know about, and it goes even further back than White, all the way back to the 15th century, a man named Sir Thomas Mallory, who first wrote some of the Arthurian legend, and then uh, White later built upon that and, and changed several aspects of that. But the interesting thing is Mallory made the claim that on the tomb of Arthur, of famous Camelot, on his tomb were these words, here lies Arthur, king that was, king that will be. It's another way of saying the once and future king. White said it that way in his book. Uh, Mallory said it that way in his, the king that was and the king that will be. Now, there's a lot of connection to what I just told you about this little literary le lesson about what this text is about today. You see, at the beginning of chapter 5, we find a beautiful prophecy of the rise of the long-promised Messiah King. And here, Micah reveals more about this once and future king to us today. A king that was and a king that is and one day will be coming again. The passage contains one of the most famous verses in the whole Bible. Did you realize that? That second verse let me read it to you again. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you shall come forth from me, one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is of old from ancient days. It's a verse that we often obviously sing and read about during the Christmas season. It's always when we do the uh, nine lessons and carols on Christmas Eve and our Christmas Eve service here at FPC. That is always one of the parts of the lessons. The carols are the singing. The lessons are the scripture readings. And this is always one as we sweep out of Genesis all the way until 
the coming of our Lord and as Emmanuel. Now, today we're going to be looking at this text with three points. The present king, and that's not who you probably are thinking about right now. You may be thinking of, oh, I know who that is. Well, maybe not. The present king, the once king, and the future king. Now, hopefully I'll straighten all that out for you as to what's what. Let's dig in. First of all, the present king. Who is that? Is that Jesus? No. That's not, where are we? We're in Micah. We're in the 7th century or 8th century. And there is a lot of kings in the world of that time. A lot of big, bad, nasty kings that are wanting to always take over more. And last week I said that there was a revival that broke out, that influenced the, through the preaching of Micah and, and also Isaiah, that delayed Judah's inevitable exile to come. They still were going to be judged, but God relented because they turned and repented, and there was a change. And there was help that the Lord provided so that they would not be utterly destroyed. But you see, that was God's plan. And, and it's really interesting if you read about that in Chronicles, about the, 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 where the prophet said there are more of us than there are of them. And God had an army, an angel army, that would ultimately protect Jerusalem for a time in the attack of Sennacherib. But Sennacherib was the Assyrian king, remember, in 701 that had been marauding and raiding and, and subjugating kingdoms all around the Judah and in Israel. And finally, he had reached and had begun to put siege to Jerusalem itself. And yet, in verse 1, that's the king that I'm talking about, the present king, the one that was in their face, in, in all around and was about and tempting and threatening to destroy the Jerusalem and its inhabitants and carry them off into captivity. But in Micah 1, Micah speaks of a siege in which the invading forces figuratively strike, is the language Judah's ruler on the cheek with a rod. Now, that's not literal. <laughs> Believe me, Sennacherib wanted it to be literal. But at that point, it was a taunt. It was a jeer. And it was making fun of the weakness of Hezekiah and the king in Jerusalem. Outmanned, outgunned, outnumbered, no way could he win, thought the king Sennacherib. The language suggests public humiliation that Jerusalem is having to endure. That's what that language, and Micah is saying, this is what, this is what is being, we're being taunted, we're being, being made to be completely without hope. Listen to Second Chronicles chapter 32, and you can hear the jeering 
and the humiliation. After this, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, who was besieging Lachish with all his forces, sent his servants to Jerusalem, to Hezekiah, king of Judah, and to all the people of Judah who were in Jerusalem. He was going after all the stuff around it, but he's now about to put his siege works against Jerusalem itself. And he says, thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, on what are you trusting that you endure the siege in Jerusalem? Is not Hezekiah misleading you that he may give you over to die by famine and by thirst when he tells you the Lord our God will deliver you from the hand of the king of Assyria? He's basically saying, are you kidding me? Where is there a God that's going to stop Sennacherib? I am mighty king. No one can keep from yielding to me. And so he was mocking and jeering. Furthermore, good King Hezekiah was completely powerless against the Assyrian king, and he knew it. He knew he had no chance. What shame and what humiliation he and the people of Jerusalem had to endure in this coming siege and attack from Sennacherib. Now, as I said, we know how it turned out. But at this point in time, all they could see, all of God's people then, all that they could see and understand is they have no way out and there is no hope. No doubt God's people in that day wondered, where's our God now? Where's Yahweh? Because does he even care anymore? The people were probably wondering, if this is always, is this, how many times is it going to end this way? Over and over and over again, we keep getting our teeth kicked in. We keep getting run over like a freight train. Are the big bad kings of the earth always going to win? And you know what? The truth is sometimes we wonder about things like that, don't we? When we see what's happening to our nation that we love, when we see things happening in the world that are unjust and wrong and ungodly and evil, prevailing, where's God? Why does he allow this to happen? We can identify with what they were experiencing in the time of that present king and others that were seeking to bring them into captivity. But you see, God sees and God knows. The Assyrian threat was a big problem, but Micah has been saying for three chapters now, that's not your biggest problem, Jerusalem, Judea. You think these marauding kings are, and what terrible things they can do to us. Yes, that's bad. But Micah's been saying, you don't know the half of it. And the bad, the really bad, is not just out there. It's in here. It's in you and me. That's what Micah was saying. 
There's a bigger problem than the presenting problem. To borrow the famous line from Pogo, Micah said, we met the enemy and he is us. We met the enemy and he is us. You see, that's what, that's what Micah was trying to get across. Everybody thought it was the outside stuff. But he said, no, it's our sin that is the biggest problem. Do you remember in Luke chapter 5 when the Lord Jesus was here as the, it's the first time, and he encountered a man that was born lame. I believe that's the, the circumstance, if I remember correctly. But, um, and he was healed by Jesus. And, of course, he went back and everybody, you know, the, the Pharisees and all pitched a fit about it. And, but you see, what he was wanting, what he needed, he thought, was to be made whole, to be healed. But what did Jesus do first? He said, your sins are forgiven. He went with the most important thing, the most utterly urgent and necessary thing. Then he healed him also, a twofer. But the problem was the man didn't come asking for the forgiveness of his sins. He came based on his felt needs. But Jesus was telling then and now, all of us, you think all of these things that you're dealing with and fighting with and suffering under, you think that those things are your biggest problem. They are not. You have a sin problem and I'm the only one that can deal with that. I'm the only one that can restore you. You see, my friends, think... Think about this question. I'm going to give you a, a, a blank, a question with a blank in the middle. If God would only give blank to me, if God would only give whatever you want in that blank to me, do you realize that whatever you put in that blank whatever you fill it with, if it's not God, it's a little God. It's an idol. Whatever it is, even a good thing, if you put that in, if God would only give blank to me, then by definition, that becomes your greater lover, your greater idol if it is above him. You see, Jesus knew where the priority was and that's why he came the first time. You see, now the once king, 
Once, meaning what? He was the king that was here one time. To us, long ago now. But still yet to come for those in the 8th century B.C. You see, the people will need God to provide a restorer and a redeemer who can solve the sin problem, not just their felt needs. And the first thing that we need to realize is that the coming of the king, Jesus, in this prophecy, is unexpected. He's not at all what the people of his day were expecting. They always could not see clearly when he came the first time. But God is going to raise up for himself a king for his people, but most will not see him coming or recognize him. And that's exactly what happened. Some did, some few. Some few had some understanding, but for the most part, the word had to become incarnate in flesh. And even then, he was ultimately rejected by his own people and crucified. You see, the ruler will be born, interestingly, it says, not in a place of power, but in this unimpressive little roadside town called Bethlehem. It was so inconsequential that it didn't even make the list of what Joshua and they were apportioning the lots of the, of the 12 tribes of Israel. It was just one of those, and it didn't even make the list. That's how insignificant it was. But there is going to come the king. You see, this insignificant place would become the most significant, would, would produce the most significant person ever born on the planet. But the one who was from the little town of Bethlehem would be ruler in Israel. He will be the king who comes, whose coming forth is, the text says, from of old, from ancient days. Now, what does that mean? That his, this ruler whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Now, this could, I'm not saying it does, but I'm saying it could allude to an even greater or more further back timeline, much beyond the time in which they were. It certainly does allude to a time before, but it could even go back even to Adam the first Adam, Christ is the second Adam. It could go back to that time, or it could be a reference to the pre-incarnate Son of God. But here for sure, it is this also. It is another way of speaking of the Davidic line. Bethlehem, the place of David, from David's line will come the king. 
the once king to come and redeem God's people. You see, for sure it points to that. Listen to 2 Samuel 7, 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And then, of course, that passage that we love so much. We also do this one at the time, uh, Christmas time, and the lessons and carols. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace of peace, there will be no end. Listen, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You see, he will be the fulfillment of all the ancient promises of God. Jesus will be the fulfillment of all the ancient promises. The seed, the offspring of the woman in Genesis 3.15. The blessing of all the families of the earth in Genesis 12.3. And the son of David himself. This once king came to us in the flesh, walked among us, and yet largely was rejected and crucified and buried. But he didn't stay there. This once king rose from the grave. And begin to turn back the clock and to bring his power as the rightful king of the line of David and beginning to transform this world for the last 2,000 plus years. Changing people, saving them from their sins, bringing redemption, bringing change, bringing the kingdom. Until one day, the scripture tells us that one day the earth will be full of the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. That's a lot of coverage. That's a lot of King Jesus wielding his way and his scepter. And yet, though all that is true, and he is working, if you could have been at the the, the uh Presbytery meeting that Sean and I attended and heard Richard Pratt, one of our former missionary speakers, heard him talk about what God is doing in this planet. It would have blown your mind. I was aware of a lot of it, but not even anything like I thought. God, the lion of the tribe of Judah is on the loose. But... There is still the need for a future king. And that, while 
born in obscurity and killed in humiliation, this king, this future king to come, has been raised now to glory and will one day return in decisive triumph as the future king. He was king in his first coming. He's king now, ruling and reigning at his father's side, but in a way that no one will miss. He will come again as he promised. You see, Jesus came the first time as a humble king to be our peace. Verse 5a says, but one day he will come again as an exalted king over all. He is the lamb of God, but he is the lion of Judah. You see, we, we don't know what quite to do with that. Is he the lamb of God or is he the lion of Judah? The answer is yes. He's both. He is a lion-hearted lamb, but also a lamb-like lion. Listen to this glorious passage, Revelation 19, verses 11 through 26. Then I saw heaven opened, behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame, like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one but himself knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen and white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And he shall reign forever and ever. You see, many of the Old Testament prophets, like Micah, even like Isaiah, even the good prophets, the ones that really struggled hard to understand God's kingdom purposes and how he was going to bring his kingdom and bring them peace. Many of them, must have struggled to understand how Messiah could be both the once king and the future king. They thought, most of the people of that day thought the Messiah was going to be that latter king, that future king, that one day all he was going to come in and mop up all the nations and put them in their place and... Israel, as they knew it, would be exalted. And no doubt, even those prophets probably had scratched their head and was wondering, well, well what? this kind of sounds like he's talking about something closer, but that, that's nowhere in sight. Sometimes it's been illustrated this way. 
that if you've ever been up in the Smokies or in, uh, in the, uh, up on the Blue Ridge Parkway and from, a, from a far off, you can see m- many, many mountain peaks. But you know what happens if you get real close. All of a sudden, you're on top of one peak and mountain, and you realize, wow, it's a long way down there, and way across, way out there, there's another peak. But from a vantage point you had 50 to 70 miles away, it looked as if those two mountains were right there together. But when you got there, they're far apart. And maybe something like that is what challenged even the Old Testament prophets in understanding that Christ would come first in his humiliation but he would come again ultimately in his utter exaltation. And in between is where you and I are. It's where we have to live in the tension of the now and the not yet. Of the now that's already come and of the kingdom that is still coming and being brought by our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in his ultimate victory This king, Jesus, will rule over all as a shepherd who gathers and tends and protects his flock in power and authority that God himself has given. King Jesus is, remember, the good shepherd who came to gather his sheep to himself, John 10, 27, and then to give them living water, John 14, and on and on as a good shepherd He came to protect them by ultimately laying down his own life for his sheep. John 10, 15. Brothers and sisters, he is a savior. This king, this once and future king is a savior to be trusted. This good shepherd is our peace. the one who is our once and future king. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for sending us the king that we need, the one who will rule over us and, Father, will carry us into the future of your purposes in your promises. Father, thank you that you came and you overcame and you're coming now through your spirit throughout this world. But, oh Lord, hasten the coming of your kingdom and the fullness of your kingdom. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.